0: what shall we do? I think that's the right question to ask after Easter, right? We finished up last week. We wanted to go a week beyond Easter telling our Easter stories. And so now that we have had time to think about the Easter story and the gospel of of Jesus Christ, it's appropriate that we ask the question, now what shall we do? So, we turn to the the book of Acts over these next few weeks, and we're gonna look at the first chapters of Acts as the early church begins to answer this question. So, if you would, turn with me to Acts 2. But what we'll discover is that before we can ask the question in verse 37, what shall we do? We really need to go back to the question in verse 12, what does this mean? Now, remember, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples gathered in Jerusalem, and they were told to wait, to wait until the Spirit comes. They didn't know what that meant. But they were waiting, and then the scripture tells us that, like a rushing wind, the, the Spirit of God came upon them, and they went out of their room and they began speaking in, in tongues and other languages. And the people around them said, What's going on here? What does this mean? And they began to gather and a crowd began to gather. And some of them began to say, these folks are drunk. <laughs> and they began to mock the, the crowd and they began to mock the disciples. Others were amazed at what they were seeing and understanding that there was something great. Others were just perplexed. They didn't fully understand what was going on. And so at that moment when the crowd was gathering, as all the, kind of the murmuring was going on, Peter began to speak. And he began to tell the story of Jesus and of his, his resurrection, of His life. And he begins to tell the story in a very pointed way so that as he comes to the end of his story, he says this in verses 23 and 36. He says, You, you all, you're the ones that nailed Him to the cross. You are the ones that put Jesus to death. You crucified Jesus, the risen one, the one who indeed is the Christ, the Messiah. And in the midst of that incredible experience with the Spirit of God, and as the story began to be told, there became a sense of conviction, a sense of of ownership, a sense of saying, wow, we, we, we did this. We, we put Jesus to death. We're the ones that, that have to take responsibility through our, our sin and through our, our actions that caused the Romans to put Jesus to death. And in that moment, in that understanding, then they asked the question to Peter, and the apostles as they were broken as they were 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 concerned as they were trying to understand as they were repentant they asked the question then what shall we do and Peter says in verse 40 be saved you see that the response to the gospel the response to the story of Jesus the response to his resurrection The response to our sense of brokenness and of guilt and of shame is that we would be saved. I want to go back to verse 37. This idea of our hearts being pierced. As Peter and the apostles told this story, the scripture tells us that the crowd was pierced to their heart that word pierced means to be pricked, to, to, to be penetrated through the skin, through the calluses, penetrated to that point of sensitivity. To that point of awareness and understanding. To that point in which you're made vulnerable inside as you look at the deepest recesses of your heart and of your life. And the scripture tells us that as, as the gospel was shared, that the crowd was pierced to the heart. They were pricked to the heart. Something became alive and sensitive and tender as they heard the message. As you know, in our family, we have uh, our, the girls are, are diabetics. And because of that journey, I've heard from... We have several diabetics in our, in our congregation. And it's a constant and daily journey. And one of the, the consequences of, of having diabetes, particularly type 1 diabetes, is that you constantly have to be aware of your sugar count. And so if you've ever been around a type 1 in particular especially around mealtime or when they're not feeling really well, is they'll take their what what do you call it? Yeah, that. <laughs> Sorry, girls. And they'll they'll prick their finger. And when they prick their finger, that needle just very quickly, very sharply, very swiftly goes into their skin and pricks their skin so that blood will flow, not flow, but blood will come out and they can check their blood sugar. And I think that's the picture that we have here. As the gospel was shared, there was, there was something, there was a needle, there was something that pierced, that, that pricked through the callousness, through the skin, through the hardness of heart. And in that moment, that crowd was pierced And they begin to understand, and they begin to cry out, What shall we do? What shall we do when our hearts are pierced? What shall we do when the calluses of our lives are penetrated or ripped off and we're laid bare and vulnerable? What shall we do when we've been pierced to the core of who we are And we have seen our brokenness and our hurt in a new and deeper way. What shall we do when we come face to face with our own sinfulness and the guilt and the shame that that can bring into our lives? What shall we do? And the scripture says, and Peter says to the crowd whose hearts have been pierced, we must be saved. We must be saved. In verse 40, he says simply, With many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Saved from, this word perverse means a crooked, a bent, a corrupt generation. The Greek word is skolios. Sounds a little bit like our word scoliosis, doesn't it? If you have scoliosis, it means you you have a curvature of the spine, Your, your back is not straight, it's bent. And that's the picture that we have is we must be saved from this bent and crooked and corrupt generation. We must be saved from the deaths, from the wars, from the divorces, the lies, the greed, the corruption. The perversions of this world and as our hearts are pierced with the gospel we become aware of those things in a deeper and greater way and the gospel the good news of Christ is that we can be saved from these things but not just to be saved from something to be saved to something We can be saved to eternal life. We can be saved to abundant life that we can begin to experience here. And last week we talked about that that abundant life was a picture of reconciliation, forgiveness, grace, being renewed in relationship with God and with each other. Paul the gospel the New Testament teaches Peter teaches that we are saved to a new way of life we are saved to what Jesus says a way of life that is truth that is direction that brings meaning for Jesus is the way the truth and the life what shall you do? You shall be saved. But church, the truth is, is that when we use that word and and that word has fallen into our pop religious culture, that you must be saved. And the truth is, is that are so many people today that do not understand or know what it means to say, you must be saved. It's lost its meaning. But I think Paul, Peter helps us to understand a little bit. And Luke, as he's writing here in, in the book of Acts, he helps us to understand better what it means to be saved. If you look in verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be saved? It means to Repent. This word repent means to to have a change of mind, a, a change of heart, a change of action toward this corrupt, crooked generation. The word repentance means to have a second thought, implying and indicating that the first thought wasn't right. So when we repent, we have a second thought. We, we step back and we say, you know, things aren't, aren't right. Things are, are not right in this corrupt generation and world. And to be saved means that we repent. We turn from that way of life. We return from the, the, the things that that generation values in its corruption. We look to a different way. The first thing we must do is to be is to repent is to turn away to change our mind to change our actions and in doing so that's the catalyst towards forgiveness repent and be forgiven it's interesting that as we read this verse it it can be I think can be misunderstood and so we look a little bit more into the translation now a.t. Robertson was a a a Prominent Baptist theologian of the 20th century. Now look at verse 38. The the key part there is, it says, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And so the question comes, does being baptized, a baptism like we saw today with Connor, does that act of being baptized, is that the act that saves you? And in our understanding of believer's baptism, we believe that baptism is the the result, is is the step of obedience that one would take after coming to faith in Christ. after repentance because it's repentance that is the trigger and is the opportunity to begin to receive and live out God's forgiveness. And so Robertson said that this Greek word here, this Greek preposition, certainly can mean for, but it can also mean on the basis of. And so we read that scripture this way. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins. So again, reminding us that repentance is that initial step that leads to salvation. Repentance is that initial step that leads to forgiveness of sin through the work of Christ. And the way that we demonstrate that or the way that we profess that is through the act of baptism. Again, we as Baptists practice believer's baptism, not sacramental baptism, in which there's some experience of receiving grace and forgiveness in the act of baptism. So again, what should we do? We should repent. And in repenting, we begin to experience the forgiveness of sin through Christ. And then the third part of what it means to be saved is the act of receiving. Receiving the Spirit of God. Receiving God's gift of new life. I love this beautiful picture of the Spirit of God breathing new life Into us. As we repent, as we experience the forgiveness through Christ, the Spirit of God breathes new life into us, filling us and allowing us to begin to walk in a new way of life, declaring that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. What should we do? Well, we we should repent. And in repenting, we receive forgiveness of sin and the filling of the Holy Spirit into our lives. This is what it means to be saved. It's interesting for those that would continue to want to explore this in Luke's theology that, that in no other place that he speaks of repentance, he speaks of baptism. He always speaks of repentance and forgiveness. Together. If you're taking notes and you want to look at a couple of places, he does that. In Luke 24, Luke 24, verse 47, repentance and forgiveness go together. In Acts 3, verse 19, repentance and forgiveness go together. In Acts 5, 31, repentance and forgiveness go together. So this morning... in the practice and experience of the Lord's Supper, we offer and we experience a gift for the pierced heart. This gift is the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a gift for us and is a gift for those whose hearts have been pierced and whose hearts have, have cried out to God and have, have been saved and are being saved through Christ Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a gift for those who've been pierced. Because you see, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that the Lord's Supper is that time where we reflect and we remember. We remember the sacrifice that the Son that Jesus made on our behalf. We remember our own brokenness. We remember our own hurt and our own pain and our own guilt as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. We give thanks for the salvation that we've received. See, the Lord's Supper is a time to remember, but it's also a time to examine it's a time to examine our life today. It's, it's a time to confess our sin today as we continue on that journey. And so as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we're called to remember, but we're also called to examine our lives and to continue to confess our sin. First John 1 John 1.9 says that as we confess our sin, as we agree with God that we are, we sin, we, we lie in, in the Scripture and God says lying is sin. We say, okay, God, I confess it. I agree with you that this is sin. We confess this to God. We repent of that sin and repentance and confession go together. And then the Scripture says we're cleansed from that unrighteousness as a part of our ongoing maturity and, and growing in our faith. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we remember and we... Examine. And as we share the Lord's Supper together, we proclaim his death and his story and his life until he comes again.